This is the last of our, uh, our summer uh, series of doing uh, a different message in the morning and at night. And next Sunday, we will revert back to our normal practice, which is one message in all three services. And uh, the primary reason that we do that is to facilitate growth groups. And uh, we'd encourage you really to be in a growth group. Um, Harvey will be at the table at the back, and you can talk to Harvey about being in a growth group. But most of our uh, growth groups are sermon-based. And uh, that's why we do the same sermon wrapped through all three services. So you can be in a growth group that has people that go to the first service, second service, and third service. And you know what we're talking about. And uh, so it's been a, a, a good opportunity for us, I think, in the summer to, to um, I guess, experiment a little bit and to um, preach and work our way through a, a few different themes. Uh, these last seven weeks, we have spent our time uh, in the uh, uh, seven churches of Revelation. And uh, part of this is because, I don't know, there's not any um, determined focus that I have, but I keep kind of toying with the idea of preaching through the book of Revelation. And um, we, we toyed with it at Easter when we introduced uh, Revelation chapter 1, that was our Easter message, as we uh, considered the vision of the risen Lord and what the risen Lord looked like and what he is actually now, how he is in his existence now in heaven. And it just seemed natural then to pick up and go through the seven churches in Revelation. And I think it's important when we think about these seven churches, because this is the way they're often preached, but they're preached as individual letters to individual churches, and we take that home with ourselves and kind of wrestle with that and work that through. Well, that is true. The messages are not self-contained. In other words, the messages that we find in these um, letters to uh, the seven churches are tied to the revelation of Christ in chapter 1, but also find them, they're, they're themselves worked out in the rest of the whole book of Revelation. And so the themes and the ideas that are introduced in these seven churches are carried through into the rest of the book of Revelation. And we need to take these seven contexts, these things that we've been listening to, and we need to integrate them into the broader context of this whole book that, that we have known as the book of Revelation and into this understanding of this worldwide conflict and this cosmic conflict that we find ourselves in as Christians in these last days. I think John's purpose in doing this is to show us, uh, and particularly these Christians uh, of each of these seven churches, how the issues in their local context belong to and must be understood in the light of the larger context, in the light of the church universal, in the light of what God is doing throughout these last days in his battle against evil and his establishing of his kingdom. So again, these, these, are, these are not self-contained units to be left that way. Rather, they introduce us to themes that come in the rest of the book. Why seven? Why seven churches? I, I think it's a symbolic number. Uh, seven is the number of wholeness. And so when we consider these seven churches, there's a sense in which God's speaking to us, or Christ's speaking to us in these seven churches, is a way for us to understand all of the main issues that we will face as a church in the last days. We will weave back and forth uh, in these as a church, and some churches might go through a number of these stages, some only one, but yet the, the, the number of seven being whole means that these are the, the general statement of issues that churches need to be concerned about. As we come to this one particular message, it's the last message, although it's not the last in the order. It's the book of Sardis, or the church to Sardis, and it's in chapter 3 of Revelation, verses 1 to 6. It's a bleak letter. It's not unlike the letter to Sardis, and there's really nothing positive 
in the letter. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still some who, a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, thank you for your word. And once again, we confess that we come before something that is so much beyond the normal stuff of life and the material things that we wrestle with. For here we come to spiritual realities, issues of eternal life, of heaven and hell. This is no stuff to fool around with. This is no stuff to just blow off. This is important for us to listen. He who has ears, let him hear. Father, how we need help to listen with ears that are open spiritually to what you have to say to us. Wills that are willing to change, to bring our lives and our thinking into line with your Scripture. Help us, I pray tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us, to this point in our life, probably have had at least one circumstance where we know of somebody who has received a call from a doctor at a particular point in their life, and from that moment on, their life has changed forever. Over the course of the few minutes, the doctor explains some devastating news, and it ends with words like, and there's nothing more we can do. This person, though very much alive, has got news that the lump that they have, issue that's in their blood, that thing that's in their brain is incurable, and they will die. The x-ray or the MRI has shown what just looking at them never would have revealed. For all intents and purposes, they looked alive. They looked well. They looked like there was nothing wrong. And yet through the eyes of an x-ray or an MRI, death has been found. In a very real sense, this is a spiritual x-ray. This is a spiritual MRI. It's the letter of Jesus to them that looks beyond the physical and the outward uh, condition of this particular church and sees what is actually going on in their hearts. And for the church in Sardis, the news is not good. You have a reputation of life, but you are dead. I can just imagine the shock that would have gone through the other six congregations that would have received this circular letter 
this series of seven letters that would have been sent around from one church to the next. As they would have read the letter to Sardis, they, they might have stopped and they, they might have gasped just a little bit. And they would have maybe said amongst themselves, really? They have so much life. Look at all the stuff that they do. Look at their reputation, not only in Sardis, but in, in, in the communities around them. Who would have ever guessed that such a statement could have been said about the church in Sardis? They're alive. But this letter says that they're dead. Such churches like that exist today. About a week and a half ago, I saw a clipping that Kathy had left for me to read. Um, Kathy reads the paper very often and will clip out stuff for me to read. And one of them was an article from August 2015. It was about a pastor in a church in Toronto. Quote, an ordained minister with the United Church of Canada is resisting efforts to oust her from her pulpit because she is an atheist. I don't believe in the God called God, Greta Vosper told the Globe and Mail. Using the words gets in the way of sharing what I want to share. So, she said, she believes the Bible is mythology and denies that Jesus is the Son of God. In her own local paper, a couple weeks ago, in the pastor's point column, one wrote, and I quote, Throughout the gospel, Jesus promised is not just more life, but abundant life. Jesus doesn't die in order to make some kind of payment to God, or to satisfy God's wrath, or to pay the penalty for sin. But what did he die for? You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And if that phrase that is said of Samson could be said of the church, I think it does. When Samson woke up after his hair had been cut off and he had no strength, or before he realized that, it says that he got up and he says, I will go out as at other times and I will shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He was alive, but he was dead. One of the fascinating things about this particular church in Sardis, is that there's no mention of any external pressure being brought to bear on this particular group of people. There's no mention of persecution, no mention of a synagogue of Satan, no Jezebel, no worries about dying for the faith. There was really no, or there is no external threat at all spoken about. Why not? I think it's because there was no faith there. There was no evidence of life there. They had fit very well into the culture and the society around them. There was nothing to resist. There was nothing to be offensive. There was nothing to bother anybody. There was no contrast. They were essentially the same as the world around them. They just had some, um, some rituals or some religion or some things that he did that gave them the appearance of life. But when push came to shove, they were actually dead. And so Jesus makes an assessment of this church. And he does it by, first of all, introducing himself in a way that we have become familiar with. If you've been here for the last seven weeks, he first of all brings out a characteristic about himself or a couple of things about himself that apply specifically to the church in this particular situation. And I think it's uh, when we understand this pattern, we recognize that Christ is all that the church needs. It's not Christ plus this and Christ plus that. Christ is all that the church needs. 
And the fullness of Christ is what we need to continue to think about, preach about, sing about, pray about, talk about. And so here it's the risen Lord saying again to this church, you will find what you need in me. He says, first of all, that he is the one who holds the seven spirits in his hand. That is, I think, very clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit. There's again the notion of seven. I think it might take us back to Isaiah chapter 11 where we have the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. But in what Jesus is saying here, I think, is He says, I am the one who has the Spirit. I am the one who gives the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life to the church. It's the Spirit who gives health to the church. It's the Spirit who gives energy energy to the church. You are a dead church. What you need is the Spirit. He is the one who holds the seven spirits. The second thing he says about himself is he holds the seven stars in his hands, which we have learned from Revelation chapter 116 are the seven churches. I think what this is saying is essentially that Christ is the center of the church, that the leadership of the church, those who communicate truth to the church, whether they're godly leaders or shepherds or messengers or angels or some connection with the Old Testament, whatever they are, it's those who give the word of God to the church. He holds the church in his hand. He has the power of the church. He gives the church gifts that it needs. If you go to Revelation or Ephesians chapter 4, you find the the fivefold ministry spoken of there. If you wish, you'd have it that way. Christ is the one that gives gifts to his church. And I think this is a focus on he's the one that gives the word to the church. And what comes from the word but his life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so he's saying in his essence, the, the need for this particular church is the spirit of God and the word of God. We might say that they had lost sight of the spirit and they have given up on the word. It's a spiritless, wordless church. Oh, it looks good on the outside. It might even look good on the inside. After all, they might sing some songs and they might have some kind of homily that's given. But as we read from this article in the paper, Jesus Christ isn't seen as the one who does anything for us. God is just really a myth. The Bible is not something that we believe in. So there's the, uh, the appearance of life, but it's a wordless, spiritless church. In light of this, it's somewhat a strange introduction. We might think it's more appropriate for Jesus to repeat what he says a little bit earlier. I am the one who has eyes like fire. The one who who penetrates, who speaks with judgment into the church. But it's clear here that that's not the emphasis. And I think there's a battle for these things always in a church whether it's in our Sunday school, our youth group, our our young adults groups, our seniors groups, our church gatherings when we get together. Do we believe that life only comes from the Spirit? Do we say to people, you must be born again, that life only comes from God? Do we say that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the Word? Do we argue and do we teach and do we believe that the Word of God is the divine Word given to us, that by it we live, that by it we have life, that by it we grow, that it is in the Word of God that we find eternal life? As soon as we start throwing those things out or casting them those things aside, as a corporate body or individually as Christians, it will not be long before we can have it said of us, You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Jesus says, I know your deeds. It's, it's, this is something that he's woven throughout this passage. This is sort of the omniscience of Christ, the x-ray vision of Christ, the MRI of Christ, so to speak. There is nothing that escapes the eyes of Christ. We might see only the exterior, but Christ sees inside of us. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, who, to whom we must give account. Proverbs 5.21, for the ways of the man and woman are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all of their paths. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Loved ones, this is the Christ of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. His eyes do not miss a thing. And so he says, I know your deeds. And as he says to them, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Everyone else who looks at you thinks, wow, what a great church you are. You know, we have the reputation of being the Bethlehem Walk Church. What a great reputation we have out in the community. That's, that's kind of what we're known as in the community. But could it, would it ever be dared said of us that we have the reputation for being alive because we do Bethlehem Walk? But actually we're dead. What's the community's view of us beyond Bethlehem Walk? What are the symptoms of a dead church? He seems to indicate there's two. There could be more. Uh, we'll come back to these in a second. But twice they are told to wake up, to watch out. I think one of the first symptoms that we see in a dead church or a dying church is spiritual slothfulness. We see another word that's used in Proverbs quite a bit. It's the word sluggard. There's little desire, little energy, little commitment to the things of God. There's really no desire beyond what is sung and what is said to personally have any interest in God. Oh, there's all the external involvements that come with singing and worship like we've done, but there's no inner response. The heart is just dead. The heart is cold. The heart is resistant. The heart, heart wants nothing to do with the change that is implied in the singing or the change that's implied in the preaching. The things that are sung and the things that are said makes little difference when we walk out of here. That's really why it's so critical that we listen to what it's said at the end of every one of these letters. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, the problem with those that are spiritual sluggards is the Word of God is, is not understood as the Word of God. It's simply heard as the Word of man. That's just another guy up there spouting off his stuff. That's just another person up there that, that, that you know, thinks they've got a corner on truth and, and they, they, they want to speak it, and it's a kind of take it and leave it kind of stuff. I've had people talk to me about that kind of stuff, and, and they, they don't mean it that they disagree. They just mean sometimes, Paul, you know, sometimes you say stuff that we like, sometimes we say stuff that, that we don't like. We, we, we take the stuff that you like home, the stuff that we don't like, we just ignore. I've had some people come up to me after preaching, um, not here in this church, but in another church, and after we preached the message from uh, one of the epistles of Paul, they come and say, you know, the rest of the Bible we, we, we understand and we like, but we don't like Paul, and so we don't believe anything that Paul says really has any relevance to our lives today. What's your view of the Word of God? 
What's your view of what happens as we sing and as the Word of God is proclaimed from this pulpit? Is it a sort of take-it-and-leave-it attitude? Well, that's really Paul's opinion or Barry's opinion or Dan's opinion or Ian's opinion, whoever happens to be in this pulpit. Or do we say, I need to go now and take that into the Word of God and see if that really is true? Somebody who is a spiritual sloth really doesn't give a rip. It's in one ear and it's out the other. The second clue, I think, or symptom is found when there's another command there which says remember. I think spiritual amnesia is a sign of a dead church or certainly a symptom of a dead church. The things that we have learned and trusted as a church 50 years ago or an individual five or ten years ago, we've really forgotten. That was an emphasis of the church years ago, and it really doesn't matter for us today. That was something I learned in Sunday school, and it really has no relevance to my life today. They've just slipped out of our memory. Recollection of the good things of God and the truth of God is faded and non-existent. With that background then, Jesus has five warnings to this church, if you could put it that way, or five um, uh, imperatives that he says to them. First is, wake up. Sometimes you, you wish you could shout these things or say them with a little bit more force, but you get the picture. It's really, a, the better way of saying it might be, show yourselves watchful. You don't care anymore. And I wonder, and I'm pretty sure this probably was an allusion to their past as a city. This city has a long history going back to 1200 BC. It was uh, a city that in part was built in an ice area, but there was a part of the city that was um, sort of on a citadel, and it was thought to be impregnable. And it was, there was so much self-confidence that, that they were sort of impregnable that on two different occasions over the course of this church's history, there was armies that had come against them and they just thought that they didn't need to be vigilant any longer. They didn't need to worry because everything was okay. And on both of those occasions, men had scaled up walls where they hadn't put any guards anywhere. They had slipped into the city. They had opened the gates and they let the enemy in and the city had been destroyed. I think it might be a reference to that. They would have been aware of that. And so he says, watch it. Be vigilant. Don't go to sleep at night thinking you've got it all together. Don't kind of forget the fact that, you know, you've done this and you've done that and the rest of the stuff doesn't really matter. Their feelings of security and their lack of watchfulness worked to their disadvantage. The problem in Sardis and in many churches today is a sleepiness. It's a false sense of security. It's a reliance on history. It's a reliance on tradition. It's a reliance on kind of what has gone before us. And out of that comes this sleepiness or this lack of vigilance or this false security or this self-deception. We're really unaware of our own spiritual disaster that's looming around the corner. All right, we need to ask ourselves, do we have the Spirit of God in our midst? Do we have the Spirit of God in my life? 
Do we have the Word of God in our midst? Is the Word of God dealt with? Is the Word of God discussed? Is the Word of God proclaimed? And then personally, do I give a rip about the Word of God? Or is it just one ear in and out the other ear and then I go out and I just live like everybody else and it has no impact and makes no difference on my life? It says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your work complete before God. They had fallen short and anything that, 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 that good seemed to be on the verge, it says Jesus, that on the verge of dying. And somehow their works had not been true works. They hadn't been works that had gone to the Father above. They were works that probably lacked faith. They were works that had no faith in them. They were not pleasing to God. They weren't complete in God's sight. They might have pleased men. They might have pleased themselves, but they had no relevance to God. Remember, he said, thirdly. Notice it. Remember what you have received and heard. I wonder, that could be a reference. You've received the Spirit of God and you've heard the Word of God. Maybe it's a reference to apostolic teaching or to the good news of the kingdom of God. There's something in their past. And likely for every single person here, and some of you may be in this state individually, I hope we're not here as a church, but what he's saying, there's something in your past that you've heard somewhere uh, that you've received. He says, go back and get it and bring it into the present. Remember what you have received and heard. And then he says, keep it. It's another imperative. That, that word is a word which means obey. Persevere in the things that you have received and heard. He's not saying go learn a whole bunch of new stuff. That may come down the road. He's saying just get back to the basics. Just deal with the stuff that at some point was grounded in truth and in real spiritual life. And bring that up into the present. And then repent. I don't know if there's any order to these that, that we would rearrange. Uh, I, I, we might want to rearrange it differently. I don't really care. I think all five of them are important. And the order really doesn't much matter. At some point, though, we've got to get to repentance. At some point, we've got to come to the conclusion that, wow, I veered off this road, this road of truth, this road of the Spirit. As a church, we have, we have somehow taken a wrong turn, and we've gone a long way down the wrong path. And to repent means to turn around and walk back down that road back to God and get on the right path again. It's a recognition that I've done wrong, that I failed, that, that, we, that, that somehow we've missed the boat somewhere along the way. And there's hope in coming back to Jesus. And then he has some encouragements and warning for them. I wonder sometimes, who profits from these warnings? Who profits from a letter like this? Is it people who have some inkling of truth? Is it people who have some sense that maybe there has something that's gone wrong? I wonder. I, I think it's maybe most often the faithful that hear these things and all of a sudden they're shaken to their senses. I was thinking about this notion of death. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. What could that mean? And I, I, I thought, well, it can't mean you're physically dead because then it would be an irrelevant letter to them. 
I wonder if it meant they were spiritually dead, but that seemed kind of odd to me. Uh, uh, Chris read um, uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, where it says at one time you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, and that was the case of all of us. And if you've never come to Christ, you are still dead in your sins and your trespasses. There is no life towards God. There is no life towards spiritual things. The only way life can come is through grace. And so I wrestled with that in my head for a little bit, and I thought, well, is he meaning that they are spiritually dead? And then I thought, well, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because how can all these dead people do the things that he he asked them to do? And I thought, well, maybe it's something like the prodigal son as he took off and then he comes back and the father says to the older son when he comes and he complains about the party, he says, your son who was alive and is dead is now alive again. And I wonder if there's some sense in which death means they were on the road to death. They're on the road to losing it all. They're on the road to just huge trouble. There's a strong warning here. Strong warning. If you are not alert, if you are not vigilant, I will come to you like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come. It's not a reference to the second coming. This is a reference to something that can happen to them in their lifetime. Their lifetime as a church and maybe even as an individual. We just become so um, lost and drift so far away from God that there's a sense in which He comes in our lifetime in judgment. When we least expect it, we lose everything that we have gained. I think that has happened to some churches. Well, we know it's happened in churches. I, Kath and I were just in Vancouver again, and I drove by. I was driving down um, Hastings, and uh, there's one church in particular, but I, I can picture four churches in my mind in Vancouver. This church used to be, I believe it was a United Church. It's now a Buddhist temple. This is in my lifetime of being in Vancouver. Jesus came as a thief in the night and brought judgment on that church. The first promise. There are some who have not soiled their garments with worldly compromise. They have not forgotten the gospel. They have not been unashamed to walk with Jesus. The word soiled their garments is is simply a way of saying they haven't compromised. Jude, we looked at Jude a little while ago. Jude one twenty three. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Do others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh? There's some in this church, this church in Sardis. They're not. It's not all a lost cause. There's a there's a group of people, a small group of people, as there can be in many churches uh, uh, in different places. And I've spoken to people who who have come to me and they'd say, Paul, I I think this church is dead. They don't preach the gospel anymore. Nobody's coming to faith in Christ. What do I do? There's a sense within them that there's life, but their life doesn't reflect the reality of the church around them. And Jesus says to those ones, those few, he says, they will walk with me in white. Garments of white. Those are the garments that, that we receive, I believe, when we go into glory. Christ was when he was transfigured, his garments were white. 
you read the book of Revelation, there's 14 or 15 reference to glorified saints in white garments. It's a wonderful promise that's held out that we will wear white. I've been to a number of weddings this past summer, and every time the bride comes down to meet her groom, there is a picture there, I believe, of that great supper when the bride of Christ, the pure, spotless bride of Christ, will come down the aisle of that great banquet hall and meet Christ, and they will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are some that have not soiled their garments. In the same way, and this, this is a, the Holman, this, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible um, adds this word in verse 5 um, where it, it says, the one who conquers, they put in the same way. And I, I kind of like that. I know it's an interpretive phrase that they put in. But I think it's a way of saying, you know, there's some that haven't soiled their garments. In the same way, if those of you who are nearly dead, if you will do what they do, he says, then you too will receive robes of white and I won't take your name out of the Lamb's book of life. Colossians 3 gives us a little bit of a picture of this. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with God. So what does it look like to turn to Christ? says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. You can't say you have life in public, and then in private, Embrace all kinds of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. You can't have a reputation for life, but the reality of your life is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and put on the new self which has been renewed in the image or in, after, in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so he says in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And then this phrase, and I will never blot him out of the book of life. Isaiah 49, 16 has, I think, one of the most beautiful images of the redeemed. Their names are engraven in the palms of God's hands. Every time he looks, what a, what, it's like a rainbow in the sky that reminds God that he will never flood the earth again. Our names written in his hand reminds God that he has redeemed us and we are his. What a word of, of assurance. This is a promise to them. Any and all who persevere in the midst of difficult uh, circumstances are secure in heaven. It is those who persevere who have the Spirit of God, who take the Word of God seriously. Yes, they are imperfect and they still have to keep on repentant, yet they rely on God and God keeps them and walks with them. 
the great hymn that I remember singing in, in, in past. My name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the promise is given. More happy, but not more secure than glorified spirits in heaven. It's his way of saying we are secure in Christ as we persevere with him. Are you living as one whose name is written down in the book of life? By his spirit, the seven spirits of God, and by his word, the seven stars, God is able to make name and reality match. God is able to make reputation and reality match. I think I mentioned to you at some point along the line, three, four years ago, I was driving to Victoria. I heard a message, and it was kind of just a throwaway line in this message. Um, it was about um, this one man's desire in his life to make his reputation match the reality of his life. I've wrestled with that for three years. You know how easy it is to have a good reputation as a pastor? You stand up here week after week. You have people that come into your office. You have people that talk to your wife. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, we're put on pedestals. I, I hope not so much in this church. And I try and bring myself down off the pedicle, pe pedestal on purpose. And sometimes you just, oh, what an idiot that guy was today. But part of my goal in life is I, I, I just, I, the tension of, of having a, a large gap between my reputation and morality is more than I can bear sometimes. And it's my desire with the Spirit of God and the Word of God to bring that gap ever closer and closer and closer. And I hope that's our desire as a church. For the reputation we have, whatever our reputation is out in the community, will more and more and more fit the reality of what God wants us to be. Let's end with this one emphasis here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the way that every one of the letters ends. And it's been plaguing me that sometimes I, I'm troubled because I, I think I and we hear acoustically, but we don't hear spiritually. It's kind of in one ear and out the other ear, but there's no desire, there's no recognition that I need to wrestle with this stuff because God is speaking to me. It's easy for listening to decay into mere hearing. And because that is so, there is, can be no church apart from listening. Christ said to every church, every single church, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. From Genesis to Jesus, we have the Word of God spoken. The Word became flesh. God, saying, God said, let there be. The, the Word of God, the living Word of God is central to the life of the church. Mouths speak in order that ears can hear. And hearing that begins as a physical function needs to become a spiritual response. When it does not, the Bible diagnoses that as having heavy ears. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. A vivid Hebrew idiom that's, that, 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 that suggests that the Word of God cannot get in. 
probably end with this word from Isaiah 4 to 5. The Lord God has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And then this, morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not back. Oh God, open our ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches.